Welcome to the Carmelite Conversations podcast. I'm Tim Beat, a member of the Secular Order of Discalced Carmelites and also a member of the community of our Mother of Good Counsel in Dayton, Ohio. And as you know, this podcast is one of our apostolates to teach people about Carmelite spirituality. And today I'm excited to have a conversation with Deacon Mark Danis, who is the founding co-host of this podcast. Great to see you, Mark. Great to be here, Tim. Thank you for uh, inviting me to have this conversation with you. Now, Mark, you've had a devotion to Elizabeth of the Trinity for as long as I've known you. How did that start? Well, that's probably a longer story than we want to launch into, but I'll give you the brief details. I actually um, saw a picture of her collected works, her uh, image on that book um, in a bookstore one day. And for some reason, uh, it just really captured my attention. I was a Carmelite. I had uh, begun my formation in the order at that time, so I wasn't unfamiliar with uh, some of the Carmelite saints. I knew a little bit about her, but the image really struck me, and I was actually going through a particularly difficult time in my life uh, at that point, and she seemed to uh, almost draw me in. Uh, I remember actually reading a uh, similar experience with a Dutch priest encountering uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, her image on a book. And he talks about how he just instantly felt like she was drawing draw, drawing him in to uh, pick up and read the book. And I had a similar experience with Elizabeth. I did. I picked it up um, and I have never put her down since. Uh, she is for me in so many ways, uh, the beating heart of Carmel in, in uh, terms of her poetic prose. She did write poetry, but I think her prose are particularly poetic, and they reach into a depth of spirituality that I think is uh, very compelling for anybody who is uh, uh, desirous of such and has uh, the opportunity to read her. It's really interesting how not only are we called to Carmel, but so often there's a Carmelite saint who attracts us as well individually, and um, it's almost like a spirituality within a spirituality. Yeah, I think that's true. And I was very John at this point to John of the Cross. Uh, I think he's the one who really invited me into Carmel. Um, I had picked up his works many years uh, prior to joining Carmel and tried to work through them, wasn't successful. And then uh, much later in my life, um, I picked them up again and actually read The Ascent on a trip to California uh, and read The Dark Knight on the way back. And uh, immediately when I landed, I said, I'm a Carmelite and I need to find a way to join a secular community of these people because this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and I'd been searching. It wasn't as though it came out of the blue. I'd been searching uh, what order or secular community I might want to uh, engage with. I had already had discussions with Dominicans, Franciscans and others. Uh, but I knew without even having a conversation with a Carmelite at that point that I was a Carmelite. What a great story. So a few months ago, you shared a small book with our secular Carmelite community, and it's called A Soul of Silence, Sister Elizabeth of the Trinity, and it was published in 1949. The author is Mother Mary Amabel of the Heart of Jesus, a Carmelite nun, and the book was translated from French into English by a discalced Carmelite. It's unclear when she wrote the French version, but how did you even find this book, and why did you share it with the rest of the community? Well, um, first, where I found it, there's a book that I believe she wrote before, uh, that is Mother Amabel, 
uh, just before this. I, I would call it actually almost a pamphlet. It uh, runs about 40 pages, but the book is entitled The Doctrine of the Divine Indwelling. Uh, it also has a publication date of 1949. Um, uh, 1950 was when the translation was completed, so that's the actual publication, but the original French was 1949. And then <laughs> on the back of that text, um, there is reference to this um, document that you're referring to, A Soul of Silence. Um, and I sought this uh, document everywhere for the longest time. And I finally found uh, a copy of it at the University of Dayton Library. Uh, so I went there. My son was a student. I had access and I went and copied it uh, from their uh, uh, document and uh, have um, have studied it ever since. It is, I think, a very nice encapsulation of the larger text, uh, the doctrine of the divine indwelling. And it really focuses on um, Elizabeth's devotion to what she would characterize as the virtue of silence, where Elizabeth, silence was a virtue. And it was uh, for her really the central virtue that draw her, drew her rather into this encounter with the living God. Um, I know we'll talk about this more as we go through, but um, that's why I chose to share it with the community. I thought it was. Uh, uh, something certainly we all should have and and uh, spending some time with. And you're right. It's only about 40 pages. It's a very quick read. But boy, is it a powerful read. There is not a wasted word in there. Right in the introduction, we read this. In heaven, it seems to me, my mission will be to draw souls into interior recollection by helping them to go out from themselves in order to adhere to God by a very simple, holy, loving movement and to maintain them in that great inner silence, which allows God to imprint himself on them and to transform them into himself. And the author says that that is the synthesis of Elizabeth of the Trinity's spiritual life. That's quite a statement and a great reason for all secular Carmelites to ask for Elizabeth's intercession. It is, and those words actually were written only a few months before her death. Uh, they are recorded in the book that I referenced, and also um, as much of this material is, it's drawn from the book and from other sources. But um, I, I echo your words, though. There's not a wasted sentence uh, in this document. The paragraphs are rich. I say, you know, 40 some odd pages. But um, if you read it, uh, you know, seriously and and seek to draw um, what it has to offer out of it, It'll take you certainly more than one reading and more than a, a typical 40-page document would to read. And that there's an example, and that is a synthesis of Elizabeth's entire, um, you know, sort of charisma, uh, her charism, and, and her devotion to, um, to silence as a virtue and to sharing that uh, with others. And the book pulls from many of Elizabeth of the Trinity's writings, bringing together things she shared with us about silence. At the end of the introduction, the author writes, silence will become then for Sister Elizabeth, the indispensable element of union. What does she mean that silence is an indispensable element of union? Well, we should uh, say first that this 
is a stage of development uh, along a continuum of many years of prayer, of study, of suffering, um, of education. Uh, one doesn't simply arrive at this desire for silence in the first uh, year of their uh, formation in Carmel. Um, but there is a, uh, there's a scripture verse. Uh, our Lord says, um, on that day, at that point, you will not ask me anything. And I think in, in part, that's a definition of what um, Elizabeth means by silence. So much of our contemplation, so much of our meditation, certainly much of our vocal prayer is designed to inform us. And we need to go through those stages. We need to, um, you know, sort of dispense with the misconceptions and our confusion about our interaction with the Lord and how he communicates to us. And so that's done through reading, study, reflection, meditative prayer, uh, a very conscious effort at, at discoursing with the Lord and so forth. Uh, but ultimately, we have to enter into this silence. And uh, I think that's exactly what uh, the author is talking about when uh, she refers to uh, Elizabeth and, and her uh, devotion uh, to silence. And as we said, the book is short. It's only about 40 pages. And we will include a link to a PDF version of it in the show notes so everybody can read this. The book is broken up into three main parts. The first is silence which prepares the saints. The second is silence which forms saints. And the third is silence which perfects saints. So let's walk through each of those sections. The first is silence which prepares the saints. This section focuses on exterior silence. And Elizabeth wrote, the life of a Carmelite is silence. What did she mean by that? Well, she's talking about the very traditional understanding of it here, um, detachment, asceticism, um, to go out from self. She uses this terminology to forget self, to take no account of self, uh, to think of God, to adhere to a silent God. These are active um, efforts on our part in the process of prayer uh, to dispense with distractions those things that would otherwise um, pull us away from that deep interior uh, realization of the uh, encountering of the living God. And for her, that is the mark of a Carmelite. Um, we are apostolic contemplatives. That means we live uh, an apostolic uh, response to God's call, actively engaging our brothers and sisters. But all of that is born of our contemplative experience. And for her, uh, recognizing that our God is a silent God. He speaks to us in silence. Uh, there's a wonderful book by um, uh, Bishop Martinez, uh, former uh, archbishop in Mexico City, who uh, the title is really uh, just that God is silent. Um, and he talks about how we, um, we serve a silent God and we have to encounter him in silence. And so that requires us, after having worked through all of that exterior um, maturation, um, we must enter into our own interior silence. We must move beyond uh, the discourse uh, in order to speak God's language, if you will. The author writes that the true quality of a soul is known by its attitude towards silence, by its capacity for silence. What does the true quality of a soul mean, and how does silence impact it? Yeah, don't 
think of, uh, it's important not to think of temperament here. In other words, she's not referring, our author's not referring to a, a temperament so much as um, what I said just a moment ago, thinking of the one that we wish to encounter is silence. And so the true quality of a soul, as you said, um, is to enter into that silence. It is to adopt the same, uh, I don't want to say temperament, but again, uh, sort of demeanor, if you will. Posture is a good idea, not a posture that is in physical, but a spiritual posture that allows us uh, to, as Elizabeth herself says, and we must remember she was a musician, she likes this terminology, the lexicon of music. She says, allows the soul to vibrate at the movement of the spirit. In other words, leaving ourselves disposed in a condition of silence um, to allow God. Uh, to pluck the strings of our soul and to um, cause it to vibrate in the way that he wishes it to. I should also emphasize, this is not, so many people ask me this, uh, it, it isn't a dead, uh, you know, uh, brain dead sitting in the dark, uh, just hoping something's going to come. It is the the soul in its most uh, perceptive, sensitive, responsive, she uses the words dilated the soul dilated to receptivity, to that touch of the spirit. Um, and that's what she means by the true quality of a soul is this uh, demeanor, this condition of silence. And the silence for her is even, is broader than what we think. We think silence and we think sound, noise, but Elizabeth talks about the practice of the silence of the eyes, something that we don't really think about. What does she mean by that, the silence of the eyes? Yeah, I'll, I'll quote from the document itself, uh, where from the first community act to the last, no one ever saw Elizabeth raise her eyes needlessly. On the contrary, it would have seemed for her an effort to look up. She does. Uh, apply silence to the entire uh, composite of the human person. Our thoughts, our words, our reflections, the use of the body, including, of course, the eyes, which take in um, so so much information. Uh, the ears, now obviously we hear whatever happens around us. We can't avert our ears, uh, but nonetheless, choosing not to engage what we might hear. She uh, layers silence over the entire human experience. The way that we so often interact with the world, that we acquire information, that we sort of reconcile uh, our place in the world, um, she dispenses with that and says, we've got to move beyond that because that inevitably and ultimately becomes influenced by our past, by our memories. John would, John of the Cross would refer to it as that whole experience of the memory. Um, by the different influences, positive and negative, she dispenses with both. Um, but but the eyes are just one very clear example of that, where she would not allow herself to see, to witness, to seek out anything that was other than her direct pursuit, which was this encounter with the living God. And certainly that must have been difficult for her, but being in a cloister a little bit easier then as apostolic contemplatives, us out in the world, how can we practice silence of the eyes today? And with all the things that we're doing, it certainly, you certainly can't do it while you're driving a car. 
you know, I, uh, I'm not going to remember his name, but there was a young saint. He actually died young. Um, he was an Italian. I remember that. You may recall the name, Tim, as I provide details, who practiced this same uh, discipline that he would never look at a woman. He would not allow himself to gaze at things that were, you know, the world thought of as, as beautiful and worthy of our attention. Um, not because he didn't think they were beautiful or he uh, wanted to be rude if he if he felt it necessary to uh, achieve eye contact in order to communicate something, he would certainly do that. But, but his objective was to not be drawn into the things uh, of the world and what so often are characterized as uh, aesthetically pleasing to uh, to the uh, human experience um, by simply averting his eyes. And yes, you're right. We we could argue um, that you know uh, having to be about in the world and conduct business and and recreational activities, taking care of families and so forth, may bring us into more of those challenges. Uh, but the method would be the same: simply diverting ourselves from anything that draws us away from that deep interior realization. You know, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Well, of course, we can't be in a in a church or in a mass, monastic environment throughout the course of the day, but we can always be dwelling in the interior um, temple uh, of our soul and be aware of the presence of the living God and not allow ourselves to be drawn off in so many ways. There are many more practical things I'm going to say about this, I suspect, when we get into some of your later questions, but uh, having to do with technology and the advent of so many forms of multimedia, uh, but simply uh, diverting our attention from those things that would otherwise draw us out of our interior encounter. Elizabeth also said that one must be silent, which is to be silent is such a um, all-encompassing phrase. And um, an example of this was for her was silence of the tongue. So we have silence of the, you know, from sound, the ears, the eyes. What did silence of the tongue mean for Elizabeth and, and what does it mean for us today? Well, it's not uh, by accident that the Holy Spirit on Pentecost arrived as tongues of fire. Um, it was a witness to the fact that we would be held accountable. Scripture says this for every idle word, for every, uh, needless to say, for every criticism, every uh, uh, accusation, all of uh, you know the the uh, unnecessary talk that goes on throughout the course of the day, and we're beginning to dabble now into these ideas of multimedia and volumes of information that assault us, literally assault us on a daily basis. But refraining from uh, unnecessary conversations, she certainly would uh, would have practiced that and advocated that, and recognizing that. Um, uh, so much of what we communicate, uh, so much of our discourse throughout the course of the day is unnecessary. It is uh, not productive. And just having to, uh, you know, sort of marshal the the mental resources for engaging in lengthy conversations that may uh, go nowhere, uh, may even serve as forms of unproductive entertainment, uh, inevitably distract us from uh, what she is talking about. And I, I'll emphasize this point, and I say the same thing about prayer. This silence is not an act. It is a state of being. Prayer is not an act. It's a state of being. It's a condition of existence. This is why pr Paul said pray without ceasing. So we need not think of praying as 
that 15 or even 30 or perhaps an hour uh, throughout the course of the day for those who are making that kind of time to be in adoration, to do a rosary, to, uh, to be at mass, of course, the greatest prayer. It is not an act. It is a state of being. And silence itself, as a component of that, is a state of being for Elizabeth. That's beautiful. It reminds me of Brother Lawrence, who said being in the kitchen was no different for him than being at prayer in the chapel. It was all one to him because he had reached that state that he was always in prayer, regardless of whether it looked like he was praying, being in the chapel, or whether he was at work. Yeah, exactly. So the second section of the book is silence, which forms saints. And this section focuses on interior silence. The author wrote this, Sister Elizabeth had a profoundly contemplative soul. Her constant tendency was to seek God within her own soul, to live there by faith in a union of conformity with Christ, as it were in an anticipated heaven. In order to arrive at this ideal, it was necessary for her to void herself perseveringly of all created things, to banish the least useless thought, to maintain her soul in that emptiness, which is required in order that it may become receptive of the divinity who is reflected in it. In a word, to make silence always and everywhere. One by one, all her powers had to pass through the crucible of silence to pass and repass through it. What an interesting concept. What does it mean to make silence? So here we're moving from that purely exterior, those things that influence us. So uh, multiple forms of information, of entertainment, of engagement in political discourse, whatever it is, we're moving ex from that exclusively, that which is external, uh, the eyes, the ears, the, the response in, in our speech, we've talked about all of that, to the first entry into the interior. So active detachment still remains necessary here. Make, obviously a verb, says we have to make sense. We have to stop it at the entry point. We talked about that. But now some of that influence is going to get in uh, through various sources. And certainly the enemy is constantly trying to uh, communicate to us uh, uh, through uh, multiple forums, including our memory. And this is where the active engagement is still necessary to, to sort of stop it in its tracks. The influences of various emotions, she says in this um, section you read, thought, dwelling on things, ruminating, uh, even pleasant experiences. Again, um, she doesn't distinguish between that which is pleasant and that which is unpleasant. They both draw us out and distract us. They both have to be um, uh, intervened with and, and uh, um, brought under uh, her control. And so it's beginning to move in. It's still an active form of detachment. And uh, in this era of, you know, uh, so many forms of media and technology, 24 by 7, this is difficult because the entry points are, are multifaceted and the influences have become more dramatic. And what I mean by that is how often we can uh, you know, hear a song, Tim, that you and I may have listened to in high school, and it had all kinds of implications for us in high school. It validated us or it challenged us or it made us feel sad or happy or whatever. That is now instantly available to us, not something that was true years ago. 
Elizabeth didn't have that challenge, although she was a great musician and she knew the great artists, certainly the uh, composers of uh, piano works. Um, and so she could still be subject to that in addition to multiple uh, forms of influence. But she's saying here we ha have to actively engage it by making silence, eliminating those things that are affecting silence. And then um, I'll let you move on because I think uh, the next section of that is even more compelling. Well, she talks about this crucible of silence. One of the things that hits me from what you just said, Mark, is that if you're trying to um, put things through a crucible of silence to pass and repass, the more you bring in from the outside, the harder your work is. So if you have this 24-7 noise and, and things to process and, and uh, memories, it just makes that prayer life that much more difficult. But what did she mean by this crucible of silence and how does it work? So let's imagine we've been relatively successful at putting up the barriers. Uh, we've moved away from multiple forms of, uh, of uh, information and communication and so forth. We've limited our conversations. We've focused our reading. Uh, we've averted our eyes. We've not allowed even those things that are um, uh, accessible through the ears to, to uh, move into the next interior. Some of it will. And we just talked about the need for continued detachment from that and making silence. Now, this third level of entry is where it touches a nerve, if you will. It, it is something that uh, whether we want it to or not, pleasant or unpleasant, it, it, it you know sort of garners our attention and we can't quite help but ruminate on it. And an example of this would be uh, one thing to refrain from is defending ourselves to another person, right? If we're, we're unjustly accused or criticized or something, we defend ourselves against uh, that and, and may even speak it to another person. That's a first level uh, reality, perhaps even a second, depending on the depth of it. But it's entirely different to refrain from defending ourselves to ourselves. In other words, I might not tell my you know, my coworker who just offended me, hey, that's not right. That's not fair. That's inaccurate. But I wouldn't likely refrain from telling myself that. Mm -hmm. She would say, banish the least useless thought, silence in humiliation and contradiction, not defending ourselves to ourselves. So that's where it begins to enter into the deep interior. I always have internal communication. We all do. But moving away from that, and just giving it over and saying, no, Lord, I'm not going to, um, you know, come to my own defense, so to speak. Not uttering a word to anybody, but nonetheless, uh, certainly uh, experiencing um, the um, inevitable angst over having been unjustly accused, my, my particular scenario here, uh, but not bothering to say to myself, yeah, I didn't deserve that. That, that wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't appropriate. That's what she's talking about. And sometimes when I, I look back on my own life, you can have some of those conversations, like you mentioned, if you're defending yourself against a coworker and you don't say anything verbally, but you might have that conversation in your mind for the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of those deeper experiences. And again, let's be clear, we're not talking about uh, all negative here. Some of these may be very positive. You know, we have negative experiences and we feel compelled to immediately rush back to, well, yeah, but I also have this person who said this about me. And, and you know, we, we find peace and consolation and continuing to repeat that to ourselves. Listen, the only person we are, Tim, 
is the person that God knows us to be. We are not who somebody says we are. We're not who somebody criticizes us of being or applauds us for being. We're not even who we think we are. That's my point. We are not who we think we are. We are only who God knows that we are. And if we want to discover what God knows about us, the good and the bad, then we need to listen to him. We need to let him speak to us. And he doesn't necessarily have to use words. He can use words uh, and he can do it in, in multiple ways. But he'll convince us in the deep interior of our heart what it is about us that is um, responsive to his will and what it is about us that needs to change. Elizabeth also wrote that part of silence is to help me to forget myself completely. How can we forget ourselves? So this is where we move um, to, uh, I'll call it the active deactivation stage uh, to confuse our listeners somewhat, but it, it draws on the scriptural verse. We're all familiar. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is Paul. Elizabeth, uh, and in fact, a, um, a father, um, Jaeger, wrote a wonderful book, uh, wherein it's referenced in the larger book, uh, The Doctrine of Divine um, Intimate uh, Indwelling. Uh, and Jaeger is quoted as saying, um, it isn't as though Paul stopped living, but Paul continued to live with Christ living through him, the fullest expression of Christ living through Paul. Now, how is that achieved? How do we begin to forget about self? How do we allow Christ to, to take over? Elizabeth talks about reaching a stage where after all this work that we've been doing of detachment, assises, um, you know, actively trying to make silent, all the things we've talked about for the last uh, 25 minutes or so, she says there's a point at which we almost stop and we turn and we simply cast ourselves into the fire of love and we begin to allow the Lord to do the work. And we don't judge it anymore. We don't question it anymore. We don't desire anymore. Desire in the sense of, oh, I want this to happen faster. or I want that to, to slow down. It's too painful. We, we don't have those uh, sort of judgments about what the Lord is doing. We simply cast ourselves into the fire. Um, of his love, and we allow him to do the work, which is nothing other than to transform us into himself. This is what Paul's talking about. Paul didn't do this on his own. So much of what Paul did, he didn't do on his own. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He was transformed by the Lord, and he was made into another Christ by virtue of allowing himself there. This is how we forget about self. Here, it's not so much the active Oh, I've got to detach. I've got to stop dwelling. I can't ruminate. I, you know, all these things that we've just talked about, they are stages of development. But eventually we simply cast ourselves into the fire of love and we allow that work to be done to us and, and not so much uh, by us or even with us. I think that's summed up by Elizabeth's own words where she wrote, I am silent. I listen to him and I love him. Which yeah. is, is just so simple. You know, silence was prayer for her. And this certainly ties into the introduction where, remember, we read, in heaven, it seems to me, my mission will be to draw souls into interior recollection by helping them to go out from themselves in order to adhere to God by a very simple, holy, loving movement and to maintain them in that great inner silence 
which allows God to imprint himself on them and to transform them into himself. So some people, uh, especially you know, if they're not secular Carmelites, if this is new to them, they're going to have difficulty understanding how silence is prayer, because early on in our lives, we equate prayer with words. So talk a little bit about this progression of prayer from verbal to silent. Yeah, so this is where um, she draws from a Thomistic theology and uh, very uh, heavily from John of the Cross, where we start to talk about the passions, joy, sorrow, fear, and hope. Now, Elizabeth uses a very interesting phrase here. She says, if I am ruled by these passions, I will not be a solitary. Now, by solitary, you and I think of someone who lives alone. But Elizabeth defines that as someone who is singularly focused on one thing. What's that one thing? Union with God. You know, Kierkegaard talked about silence in a wonderful book um, where uh, the book is called Purity of Heart. And the subtitle basically is Pure, uh, Purity of Heart is to will one thing. And it eliminates so much of the noise, both exterior and interior, if we get to the point where we truly will one thing. For Elizabeth, that meant the only joy I experience is the encounter with the living God. The only sorrow is to have that absent. The only fear is that I might um, you know, lose my way, if you will, or offend God and, and, and be separated from him for a time. And my only hope is for the fulfillment of that desire. So she takes all of these passions that John talks about and says they must be solitary, singular, singularly focused on my active pursuit of this union with the living God. And I, I'm going back to your uh, to your question here. Um, how does the progression occur? Well, it, it is also the beginning of the experience of peace which our Lord promised would be our, our gift from him, and also the elimination of anxieties and fears. Paul, in his letter to Philippians, says, have no anxiety, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known. We simply let God know, and then we enter this silence, and we try to control these passions, become singularly focused on the fulfillment of the will of God, and everything that would otherwise distract or impede or serve as an obstacle that if it hasn't been actively detached from by our efforts is simply cast into the fire of love and becomes part of it. Do you have any suggestions if, uh, if one of the listeners, if this was new to them, sometimes when you start to sit in silence at, at the beginning, it can feel kind of uncomfortable. How do, how do people get more comfortable with that? Is time and just kind of having that determined determination to sit in silence the only way to go? It, it is uh, a necessary component, but, but we should flesh that out a little bit. There is a natural progression here. We have to move from grounded vocal prayers, those that help us engage our gift of speech, so we can hear the words. And I don't just mean the Our Father and the Hail Mary. I mean uh, any active prayers. There are many of them that have been provided to us by the saints. And they are somewhat, um, they, they must be somewhat responsive to our immediate circumstances. If I fear, you know, health 
concerns, if it's a relationship issue, if it's, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, concern about a parent or something, whatever our circumstances are, vocal prayers are important here because they give us confidence that we are engaging God, that he hears us. We know he hears every prayer and he responds to every prayer in his own timing, in his own way. Then moving from that to the mental uh, and allowing our mind to, to engage in pursuing this silence. And then ultimately, of course, as you said, moving into uh, the silence of contemplation. But there are some things that we should be aware of. Everything we've talked about um, in terms of this preparation and the deeper interiority as it progresses to the deeper interior, we, we should keep in mind things like remote and proximate preparation. What do we mean by that? It's, it's terminology that Teresa Vavila uses. Remote preparation has to do with, I'm going to pray tomorrow morning. How can I prepare myself tonight to pray tomorrow morning? If it's a, a scripture verse, maybe I'm going to use the, uh, the gospel reading from Mass, which is a good choice, by the way. I should read that the night before. I should think about that. I should do some meditation on that. I should also remove from my experience anything that may distract uh, you know, I'll tell you, my wife and my daughter and I uh, have gone to what we were calling dry February. A lot of people do a dry January where they choose not to have alcoholic beverages in the month of January. We're doing dry February from television. All three of us have agreed no television during the month of February, not even the Super Bowl, by the way. I'm less interested in who's in it now, so <laughs> it's easier. But nonetheless, um, that's a form of remote preparation. Don't be in those places that are going to bombard you with the information and, and assault you with information, influences and so forth that are going to distract your prayer. Proximate preparation, that which I'm doing proximate to, close to my time of prayer is also very important. Maybe there's some discussions I really shouldn't be engaging in. There's some sources of media I shouldn't necessarily look at. Uh, there's some things I shouldn't be thinking about. All of these things in the 15, 20, 30 minutes before I enter prayer formally enter prayer, uh, need to be silenced. They need to be put aside. And these are ways to begin to help us, um, you know, sort of set the stage, set the table, uh, if you will. We could also go a little further and talk about John of the Cross's um, approach to this. Remember when he says, uh, not to the easiest, but to the hardest, not to the most pleasant, but to the least. Silence is not inactivity. It's the most active, but in a different way. It is um, the interior listening. And oftentimes, it is those things that we find uh, that we're most um, drawn to that are distracting us. And that's why John says, eliminate those things. Take the hard route. My last statement on this is, we all know this, Tim. We've all had the experience of waking up at three o'clock in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. And you're laying in the bed. The room is dark. There's largely silence around you at that hour, two, three o'clock in the morning, whatever. But aren't we very attentive? Aren't we aware of every little sound in the room? I remember once in a, in a um, different state than where I live today, we had a small house. And I'd wake up occasionally at three o'clock in the morning. And boy, every sound was somebody, you know, trying to get in the back door off the porch or, you know, <laughs> a, a, a squirrel was running across the roof or whatever. You're just very attentive 
to everything around you. I'll say something else about that experience. You are never more who you really are than who you are in the darkness at three o'clock in the morning. All of the masquerading that we do throughout the course of the day has been removed. It, it need be. Nobody's there. I mean, maybe your spouse is beside you in bed, but they're likely asleep, hopefully. So, so you really are who you are before God. And those are the experiences I'm talking about um, that Elizabeth and her invitation to silence is inviting us to. Yeah, some of those are just so practical. Like I know I, I get up at 5 a.m. every day, and the first thing I do is pray. And when you talk about proximate causes, one of the things I will not do is read the newspaper or or any news before I pray. It, there, because I, I can guarantee if I do, it just brings in all those things. I it, It's not that I don't want to be uninformed, but that is not the time to read it. And as you say, I, one of the reasons I like praying in the morning is you do feel a little bit purged from the night. You know, you you have that natural um, silence. It's much, much more difficult for me to uh, to pray, you know, like um, after getting home from work or something, you have all those thoughts and things like that. So I guess we do have a lot more control than we would think, at least over what some of those causes are and how we prepare for prayer. We absolutely do. And again, I'll say in this era, there are also uh, many more uh, forms of distraction. You know, I'll share with you a title of a separate book, kind of interesting. Um, I heard this on NPR as an interview with a gentleman. The book is titled um, Stolen Focus, Stolen Focus. And it is about his contention is we in our society have lost the capacity for deep thought. We've lost the capacity for sustained reading, for significant problem solving. Now, he's not talking about everybody, but uh, large portions of the population. And for multiple reasons, I don't want to elaborate. And the author goes through 12 approaches to this, which I also want to elaborate because I don't have time. I thought, what a wonderful text for me to learn more about how to help people get into a contemplative experience of prayer. This is exactly the point. And he does talk about multimedia and he talks about uh, barrages of information. But he also talks about things like diet and, you know, the amount of sleep and, and how we entertain ourselves, all kinds of things. Anyway, I brought it home and my wife, who's a teacher. Uh, stole it and said, no, no, this looks <laughs> terrific for what I'm trying to do in teaching young children how to read. And so she's gotten into it and she's uh, she's uh, sharing with me some of the nuggets of it. I hope to read it when she's done. But um, this is just true of the, re you know, the reality of where we live today and how we live. Um, we have to take control of that environment. Choose to turn on. You know, I used to joke when I would give presentations, Tim, you may have been the uh, recipient of one of these. And, and I would say, you know, people come to me and say, do you mean I should turn off my phone, turn off the TV, not be on Facebook? But, you know, and they run this litany of things that they should do as though I'm going to say, well, no, I'm not talking about that. And I'll look and I'll go, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what we need to do. We can't live as monastics. I get that. But we can put ourselves in the desert. We absolutely can, uh, from a from a perspective of, um, you know, avoiding these distractions, we can live in the desert for, for periods of the time throughout the course of our day. We simply choose not to do that. Exactly. Very good point. Now, the third section of the book is silence, which perfects saints. And this section begins with this quote. What is God's usual response to the longings of his chosen ones as recompense for their detachment and in order to enlighten their yet darkened souls, 
and to render them fit to take part in the great concert of the elect. Silence. This perhaps is the most crucifying suffering of love. I love this, this quote talking about the great concert in silence. What a, a, a juxtaposition. On one hand, we find great consolation in silence. But on the other hand, we can find great loneliness and suffering in silence. There's a lot of self-knowledge that comes from spending time in silence. And that is not always pleasant to get to know ourselves, as you had mentioned before. Yet God remains constant through all of it. So talk a little bit about silence being both joyful and painful, sometimes at the same time. The joy is easy, I think. I mean, uh, I work in a homeless shelter, and right now, unfortunately, our numbers are extremely high for a host of reasons. Um, but the consequence of that is there's a lot more noise. I mean, we have almost 70 children in the women and children's facility in addition to uh, over 200 uh, women. So. Uh, and then we have another 300 plus men at a separate facility, but we, we broached uh, close to 600 folks. Um, that creates a lot of noise. It creates a lot of grind, uh, even just background noise like TVs and radios and, you know, conversation. Uh, so seeking silence as a way of, of finding peace and, and uh, serenity, uh, that's easily understood. And the best experience, of course, is to go out into nature, right? Go into the middle of a deep wood. And you'll know what I'm talking about or uh, hike to the top of a sufficiently high uh, mountaintop and you, you'll know that experience. Uh, I often use in my teaching uh, the beginning of the movie. Um, oh, what's the uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting it now. Uh, Sound of Music, the Sound of Music, Julie Andrews. And I, I always ask the question, how does that movie begin? And everybody says, oh, she's singing in a meadow. No, no, no. What happens before that? Silence. 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 Yeah. yeah. You get, you're given the impression, it's actually a helicopter, but you're given the impression of a bird wafting on the winds over the Alps, right? And you actually hear this. Just this, you know, very subtle uh, expression of the breeze at, at that altitude, but really it's silence. And then they come and zero in on her. That's what I'm talking about. That is a pleasant experience. The other side of it, is the is the absence of the the response from God, right? So here we talk about abandonment um, and the sense in John's language in the dark night that we've been left aside, that we failed, that we've gotten off course. Again, Martinez's book, uh, Archbishop Martinez's book, God is Silent. This is painful. This is very painful. When we're seeking to understand, we want him to respond and we get nothing but silence. Why? Why is that true? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, um, the need for us to um, desire uh, to hear him, the want, if you will, um, is in, uh, increased when there's silence, like the lover who seeks the voice of the beloved and wants to just hear uh, that sound, which is so special to them and can't hear it, you know? Um, so, God does it to um, increase our desire. But secondly, and you've raised the point yourself, I'd go to 1 Corinthians 13, where God, where, where Paul rather tries to define love. And he says, love is patient and kind. And then what does he do? He lists eight things that love is not. It's not rude. It's not arrogant. It's not self-seeking. He goes on. What does silence do? It bubbles all of that stuff up for us. It brings to the surface all the dross 
that which is uh, the impurity in gold that is boiled away over uh, periods of time with increased temperature. That's true in us. And the crucible of silence, the fire of love brings that out in us. We realize we're not so patient. We're not so kind. Uh, we do seek our own way many times. And this is brought up um, when we're forced to sit uh, in silence and not uh, given the benefit of receiving, you know, sort of a back and forth uh, discourse with God. Um, this is a very difficult time. The phrase I always use, of course, here is uh, our Lord on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's the experience of it. That is genuinely the experience of it. A sense that we are abandoned when, in fact, um, faith remains, hope remains in the midst of that, even for our Lord. Of course, I'm quoting a psalm at the end of which um, it is very consoling, uh, but but that is initially the experience. So in silence, God's almost imperceptible. And what I hear you saying is that part of that is to increase our longing. Um, part of that is a, a purging, a suffering that um, dark night. It reminds me a little bit of um, Elijah and, um, you know, hearing God in that whisper that there's, as you said at the beginning of this, uh, our conversation today, that God is silent. So it's not just that in silence, God's almost imperceptible. God is silence, and that silence is almost um, imperceptible. Such a, um, always amazing to me how one Carmelite saint in their writings just so, is so well woven into um, others. As you had said, Elizabeth and John, um, you know, just uh, watching what they write um, it's just woven together so beautifully and, um, you know, together just makes a, this beautiful Carmelite garment. Yeah. I like to say that John is the brains, if you will, of the operation. I mean, his poetry, obviously very beautiful. His, uh, his, uh, poetic prose, even, uh, the dark night, the ascent, uh, the spiritual canticle, the living flame. I mean, that, that, that is the fullest expression of what we're talking about union, the living flame, but John is is revealing. He's unearthing. He's he's showing us. He's explaining. Elizabeth to me is the heart. She's really the beating heart. I mean, her prose is all poetic. It's all, you know, this rapturous love. She doesn't talk much about suffering. Elizabeth, though we know she did, she really doesn't talk about it much. She does talk about the need to dispense with so much, but she really focuses on. And of course, she was drawn into union very quickly. I mean, she's a woman who died at age 26. Um, and yet we know that she was drawn into the intimate uh, union with our Lord before that. Uh, so she moved very quickly uh, to eliminate these distractions. And this is the whole point. You know, how how desirous are we? What are we willing to do uh, to dispose ourselves? Again, we don't do this. We dispose ourselves. The Lord does the work, but he can't do the work unless we open uh, ourselves to it. Elizabeth speaks from the heart in explaining that. Elizabeth also writes that silence is thy praise. Yes, it is the most beautiful praise, for it alone will sing for all eternity in the bosom of the tranquil trinity. Normally, we think about praise connected with words, you know, praise and worship. But here, Elizabeth equates silence with praise, the most beautiful praise. Why does she make that connection? 
Well, I'm going to go back to John again and provide the intellectual answer before I elaborate on Elizabeth's more romantic uh, expression of it. John says, what God desires most is silent love. The language he knows best is silent love. Sitting in silence. And again, I'll use that phrase that our Lord himself used. You know, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. In other words, we won't need an explanation. That's also part of this. When we are drawn into these deeper encounters with the living God, so many of our questions, which seem so compelling at the beginning of our walk, at the beginning of our journey, whether they were frustrating or they were just, you know, for our own intellectual exercise or what have you, they become so small, so insignificant, and and more and more they become enveloped in silence. And this is the response. I know God loves me. That's it. I know God loves me. Or in Elizabeth's uh, wonderful letter uh, to um, the um, uh, Mother Prioress uh, of the Carmel that she was in, she wrote this letter to her, and I, I've spoken on this so many times. Um, it was simply titled, Let Yourself Be Loved. Let Yourself Be Loved. What a wonderful phrase. This is the human experience if we understand our relationship with God. So much of what we get to later in the spiritual journey is let yourself be loved. Does that mean it eliminates the pain and the suffering? Is there still a sense of, um, you know, the need for purification and cleansing? No, all that will still be there, even in the later stages of the journey, less painful and, and with more sort of affirmation. But let yourself be loved means let God do the work he wants to do in you. Let him have his way with you. Silence, purity of heart is but to will one thing, God's will. And this is another way of describing it. This, this idea that our will and God's will become one. There's no disparity. There's no daylight between the two. And when we get to that point, even if we're not there in terms of all of the purification, but our desire is exclusively for God's will in every aspect of our life, then we will know this peace. And that is in itself praise. The author, the author says that Elizabeth's apostolate was silence. She writes this, in the heaven of glory, she continues her mission and exercises her hidden apostolate in favor of a vast number of priestly and interior souls, an apostolate of silence by means of recollection and union. Now, there are some people who would probably contend that prayer isn't an apostolate because everybody prays, but for Carmelites, our dedication to prayer is at an entirely different level. And certainly an apostolate of silence would seem like a strange concept to many people, but it just seems like it's at the heart of what being a Carmelite is. How do you see silence and prayer as an apostolate? Well, again, I go back to silent love. God most wants the desire of our heart. The spirit prays through us because we do not know how to pray, right? This is right from Paul's letters. We can't allow that to happen if we are constantly involved in the process. How does that come about? By our silencing all of our desires that are other than that singular desire for God. How is it communicated as an apostolate? By being lived, 
if we listen to the words of those who lived with Elizabeth, and we don't know whether whether Amabel did, of course, we, we have no evidence of that. In fact, it's unlikely she did, but she clearly seems to have some insight uh, on the sisters who did live with her. We know, for in fact, for, for example, that um, when they would go on retreat, the, the other sisters would tease Elizabeth and say, oh, you're going to be practicing silence. You're all about silence. You know, one might be praying the rosary. Another might be devoted to adoration. Another might be devoted to nature. With Elizabeth, it was always silence. And people seem to know that. This silence of the eyes, we only know that because somebody said that about her or was written about her. So by her very life, it is an apostolate. You can say, well, how could prayer, how could silence be an apostolate? They saw the way that she lived. They saw her refrain from making comments that were unnecessary, refrain from defending herself, avert her eyes, not respond to what she might hear, never speak about somebody else, even if it's, you know, not necessarily inappropriate, but you're just sort of sharing information. But for Elizabeth, no, nope, that's off course. That's that's a distraction. I'm not going to engage in that. So she lived it out in the course of her life. Others witnessed it. That's how it became an apostolate. And for her, that was. Uh, the greatest gift that she was able to uh, to provide us in Carmel. Just beautiful. Um, what an amazing book this is, or, or pamphlet, only 40 pages. Do you have any final thoughts on it? Anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share? You know, I, I thought about uh, you're uh, inevitably asking that question. How do you how do you want to close it, Mark? And a thought has come to me throughout the course of the day as we prepared for this. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. It's from the Old Testament. It's from Hebrews, as you know. And I think that's what this silence is. You talked about the crucible, and I would say that crucible is the consuming fire. What is the consuming fire? What is the fuel of the consuming fire? I won't go so uh, uh, directly as to say it's our sin. I think to some extent that's true. But it's everything that is not, that within our life, that is, everything that is not God. We are caught up in this fire. If you like John's analogy of the log, that's a good one. Uh, but we are caught up in this fire and everything that's not part of that, and the definition of course is love, is simply consumed. It becomes the fuel for the fire. Silence is the crucible of entering into that fire. Let yourself be loved. Know that you're not perfect, but you will be made perfect by letting yourself be loved. Enter the crucible of silence and let the consuming fire of God's love purify you into divine union. Wow, beautiful. I can't thank you enough for both sharing this book with our community because I just loved reading it. And I think I'm going to read it probably over and over again and also sharing your reflections on it with us today. Uh, we will include a link to a PDF file of the book so listeners can download that. That'll be in the show notes. And Thank all of you for listening to this episode of Carmelite Conversations.